0: A third of our CEOs are women, and a third of our CEOs are people of color. So we're really expanding our portfolio to look really at the best deals, blind to gender, blind to race.
1: Hello, listeners. Welcome to Capital Calls, Palico's podcast covering the leaders and trends shaping the world of private equity. In today's episode, we welcome Maureen Stancic-Boyce and Amy Salzhauer both managing partners and co-founders of Good Growth Capital. Founded in 2015, Good Growth Capital is an early-stage venture capital firm known for its expertise in finding, cultivating, and assessing complex science and technology startups. Maureen and Amy have been working together in private equity for over 20 years. They originally founded their first venture capital fund, Ignition Ventures, in 1999. Maureen is a former IBMer and holds a PhD from MIT. Amy holds an MBA from MIT and a master's from Cambridge University. In this conversation, they talk about what it takes to invest in complex businesses in the world of science and technology. They also talk about how diversity has given them an edge in sourcing extraordinary entrepreneurs, and we get a glimpse at what makes their partnership so successful. Enjoy this conversation with our head of strategy, Claire Commons.
2: Maureen, Amy, welcome to Palico's Capital Calls. Our institutional members are always looking for unique investment talent. So I'm very happy to include your voices and your brains on this. So welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. So good growth is led by five partners who all have significant experience as operators, as, as builders of companies in a number of different fields. It's hard to go from building a company to an investing in a company. There are different skill sets, and you and your team have, have managed to make that evolution. How have you done that? Well, the five
3: managing partners, just the five managing partners that started 18 entities worth billions of dollars. And it actually was a very natural transition. So for example, Maureen and I spent decades looking for the most important, most impactful pieces of science and technology anywhere, and then starting companies around them. And now what we do is we look for the most important, most impactful pieces of science and technology, and we invest in them. So the team brought together people with huge amount of operating experience. And then for example, David Mendez on the team had started his career in venture capital 20 years ago. So we have the fund operating experience and the operational experience to really drive our investments. When we're looking at an investment, we're looking at how we can and whether we can drive that company, grow that company towards a really profitable exit that will return significant capital to our investors within four to seven years. And so that operational expertise, because we know how to run any company that we're investing in, even though we might not actually, we're not going to really run it, but we're really hands-on in coaching and working with our CEOs. And so that operational experience is one of the things that is driving significant returns for LPs. And our funds are doing really well, I think, partly because of that.
2: You guys are deeply involved and deeply embedded in the early stage startup scene, and you see thousands and thousands of business plans all the time. Are there some things that you can just tell after having reviewed and met with so many of these founders over the years, where you can see this is a clear gem, this is a clear winner? I think that we can see things to determine if we should continue, right? So we
0: look for a large Market size. We look for founders who have, have certainly have done it before. And if not, have they surrounded themselves by people who have done it before? We look for defensible technology. That's really important. And if it's not with a patent, it's with know-how that it's defensible and that others can't enter the market. We look for our entrepreneurs to be coachable. Nobody knows everything. This is the first time they've ever anyone's ever created this. We want to make sure that they're going to be open to getting input from others and that they'll step aside when they need to, when they've outgrown their abilities, that they'll step aside and let someone else grow. Amy, have I forgotten anything else?
3: You know, Maureen often says, we're looking for superior defensible technology companies that fill pressing societal needs. And then we're also looking for companies that will have an exit in four to seven years, right? It's a very specific investing strategy. And then within that, I would say that when we see a gem, it's not something that's looking for a product market fit. It's something that clinicians wanted yesterday, that every company we do diligence with says, when can I have it? That if you talk to the customer, it's a clearly, this is transformative and really important for them. Maureen, would you like to give the example of Skyhawk Therapeutics? I think that's a that's one example that is a good illustration of what we mean.
0: Sure. Well, she was had worked at the SMA Foundation and sold it to Roche. SMA sold the technology to Roche for $700 million. She worked at Roche, and then she realized the technology is applicable to many other diseases. And that's when I met her. She had one angel in at the time. But it's a really complex technology. I realized she was looking to apply the technology to multiple other rare genetic diseases. And I realized it had quite a bit of potential. These were undruggable diseases. And so realizing the potential, I was able to bring in the team to do the due diligence. So we have several doctors on our venture partners and advisors. And so I was able to bring them in and really dig into the technology. But you have to be able to explain any of this complex technology in very simple terms. And that's what really helped her do.
2: Yeah, that's something that I've always found impressive is the ability to understand a very technical and specific solution or idea. In that case, you mentioned using advisors and, and, and other people in your network. How do you think about evaluating investment when you really don't have the background in the field, something very technical and specific? As you said, you can't know everything. So how do you get to the point where you know enough that you can say, this is really amazing?
3: We only invest in things that we really understand. So if you look at the venture partners and advisors, that's another 15 people who've started another 30 companies with a huge amount of technical and, again, operational expertise. We're not just surrounding the fund with PhDs. We're really looking to understand deeply not just the science or the technology, but what is going to be the growth path of that company and how we can help it grow and then bring it to an exit. That's a very specific set of skills. And really, if you look at our fund, we are one of the only funds of this size that has this incredible amount of expertise surrounding the fund. So we are able to invest in and source and diligence these very complex pieces of science and technology that are really important and then are growing very rapidly earlier than most other funds. And then we are in and we have our allocation. We have strong relationships with the company and other funds are fighting for their allocation. So we have over a hundred co-investors. It ranges from A to Z, starting with Amplify to Bolt to Briar to Graycroft, on and on, top tier funds that are fighting for allocation and, and we're already there. So I think that the expertise is really important. And it's also important to know what you know and not invest in things that you really don't understand.
2: Some LPs themselves, I mean, you're talking about co-investors, some LPs themselves actually are looking to co-invest in deals directly with the venture firms. Is that something that you typically do?
0: We do, yes. We welcome our LPs to co-invest whenever there's any room in the round. We'd say probably half of our deals we've had co-investors. So we're excited to bring those opportunities to to our LPs.
3: Yes, I mean I'll just add that we really pride ourselves on our strong relationships with our LPs. We love our investors and we pride ourselves on having great communication with them. We'll even fight for allocation in an oversubscribed round for our LPs.
2: I want to talk a little bit about the ecosystem of of the tech scene and I think everybody knows about MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I think your your approach is somewhat innovative and you've developed this idea this Infinite Corridor. Could you share what what that means and and how you've developed this?
0: Infinite Corridor, we're looking for deals that are pre-seed and seed. So really early on, it's not only MIT, but it can be other transformative science from other universities. As you might see, Carolyn did her MBA at Duke, and then we have David who did his MBA at UNC. So we're also in Research Triangle. For MIT, before COVID, I was there twice a week working with teams. I'm a mentor at what they call the Sandbox Innovation Accelerator. So we see teams so early on, kind of sometimes we're working with them to fix their IP, helping them build their teams. We're de-risking these early, early stage companies. And then we would consider investing follow-on rounds. We really view it as a sourcing fund
2: for our general fund family. And as you said, Cambridge is not the only place where good ideas come, right? So let's talk about the Southeast, for example, as one place where it seems like you've created quite a a network there. Why is that area special? What what makes the Southeast a special place to find new companies?
3: We are one of the only early stage tech funds in the Southeast and certainly one of the only deep tech funds. So we see so many interesting deals that... Pretty much nobody else is looking at. There is a certain level of boots on the ground for early stage investing like this. As Maureen was saying, we're really mentoring these companies very early and looking for really important pieces of science. Important pieces of science, you know, scientists are usually not the right people to run their company. So we are throughout the Southeast, we actually have some more structured ways of listening to people who are pitching in the Southeast. And as Maureen said, if you look more closely at our team, we have, she is surrounded in Boston by lots of people who are at MIT. So we're seeing pretty much everything that comes out of MIT. We're seeing all this deal flow from across the Southeast. But then if you look at our fund, you'll see that that's sourcing and you'll also see deals coming in from other regions. I think that's really because we are not a Me Too fund. We are a fund that is originating really interesting deals. And CEOs want our expertise in helping to build their companies. So they're coming in from all regions. We also have co-investors who are bringing us deals from all regions. And we have our CEOs who recommend us to other CEOs. We have never lost a deal. We are in every single deal we want to be in.
2: I want to follow up on that because in some ways, winning and losing the deal is just the first step, right? And then there's all the value you can add after, after you win the deal. So I would love to hear a few examples of investments you've made, and then after you make the investment, all the the additional value that, that you bring to that founder. Sure, I'll start. and We
0: both have several examples here. I talked about Skyhawk just very briefly. I sat down with her every other week for nine months working on her pitch deck because it was very complex technology. And she understood this RNA skipping repair. But I wanted to make it such that multiple other people could. And so I said, you know, even if I'm not the expert in the field, I want to be able to understand this and make it in a way that I can easily understand and others can easily understand. So I sat with, sat with her for every other week for like these nine months. We introduced her to VCs. We introduced her to angels. We introduced her to a scientific advisory board member. We looked at it. Amy looked at the IP platform and said, you know what? This is not just for rare genetic diseases. This is much broader. This is the right amount of money that you should be raising. And that's, that's what she did. We can go on and on with that. Another example, Radical Plastics, same thing. What um, is Radical Plastics? Oh, I'm sorry. Good, I, good question. Radical Plastics is a company that is creating biodegradable plastic film naturally in the environment economically. And that's the big difference there. So it's an additive that's put into the existing manufacturing process that renders the plastic film biodegradable in the natural environment. Again, We worked with them to figure out what was the right amount to raise. We worked with them to introduce them to other investors. I'm on the board. We continue to work with these two women founders to really strengthen the company. Amy, what other examples? We could could go on and on here.
3: (laughs) Yes. Once you get us started talking about our portfolio, we get excited.
0: It's always Uh, the best part.
3: (laughs) It is. I mean, we'll take everything from, it's a really important technology, but it hasn't developed its IP strategy and we need to do the licensing. One of our advisors is Lita Nelson, who ran the MIT Technology Licensing Office for 25 years and who can put together deals that you would think this is not going to work because you just could never do the licensing deal. We introduce companies to customers, to manufacturers, to board members. We really can run these companies and you know, we take an active, active role. We'll put together the next round for them if they, you know, if they need help doing that. So
2: it's sort of where do we begin and end? We just keep keep going with them. Your last deal you just mentioned was two women founders, and I think I remember. I think it was Sheryl Sandberg who quoted Warren Buffett. So now this is <laughs> he said that he said she said that she said that he said that. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason he was so successful is he only had to compete against half the population. And I'm not as good as math as you guys are, but mm-hmm. <laughs> the simple math is that obviously if you can tap into a more diverse pool of founders and potential deals. Well, that should be a pretty winning strategy. So has this been your observation? And do you feel like you have a competitive advantage in this? We do truly feel that it's competitive. We have 75% of our
0: founding teams have a member who's a diverse founder. And we consider that one of the five first employees of that company. Not some advisor has some founding shares, but truly a founding member of the team. And then we have a third of our CEOs are women, and a third of our CEOs are people of color. So we're really expanding our portfolio to look really at the best deals, blind to gender, blind to race.
3: I think it's important to note that we don't give them any preference. We just give them the opportunity. As we mentioned earlier, we see about 10,000 deals a year. And our first fund has top decile performance. They're just outperforming. You Maureen and I—we have been partners for a long, long time, and we started multiple companies out of MIT, Harvard, Cambridge, Columbia. And in the course of doing that, we we raised you know millions of dollars, pitched more than a thousand times, probably more than two thousand times for capital. And I never once pitched a female decision maker at any fund. So I think expanding who's investing just naturally expands who ends up with capital. You, it's easier to envision somebody else as a CEO when, you, when you've been there, it, it's also maybe more inviting for those founders to come in.
2: And just to me, it feels like if you have a deeper, wider pool of options to invest in, well, that's a winning strategy as well, right? Yes. And as Amy said, we don't
0: necessarily look for those founders. But because we're diverse ourselves with the three women managing partners, and then we have one Latino partner, David Mendez, and then we have John Osborne, we are a diverse team. And and so we are more inviting to those diverse founders, we believe.
3: I think it also plays into our strategy. We are not looking for a charismatic founder, right? It's not like a, we work investment strategy. This founder has so much charisma that he can carry it. We're looking for superior, defensible, impactful science and technology. And so we're not looking for the founder to be charismatic. We're looking for the founder to be really knowledgeable. That is different and that has opened things up. I think we also view neurological diversity as one source of diversity. You know, I could go on and on about some founders who really have a hard time because their science is so Difficult to explain. It's really, you need a deep understanding to get there. And we have the team that does that. I'm looking right now, we're doing this interview by Zoom. So I'm looking at Maureen. She's amazing at doing that, at listening to somebody's vision, understanding how we can take that kind of scientific vision and turn it into a real business strategy. Carolyn Lasala, the same thing. I mean, she was doing that at Apple for a decade where she would do something like take Steve Jobs' vision for the App Store and understand from the stack level all the way through to building the sales and you know, marketing and how you're going to service that. She launched and led the App Store. She launched and led iTunes Europe. She was one of the original team that launched iTunes. That's really taking a complex vision and making it practical. And
2: we do that again and again. Yeah, I guess there's so many different kinds of diversity, and it's all important to have multiple dimensions to, to make the best decisions. I want to circle back to something I think, Amy, you, you mentioned in passing, but I think it's very important to be thoughtful about fund size and thinking about how big you want your fund to be as it relates to your very specific investment strategy. So could you talk a little bit about that in terms of your fund size and how it relates to the types of companies and investments that you're looking to make? Sure. Sure. So we did three
0: pieces of analysis to determine the right fund size. The first piece was we looked at our general fund one. And just in the companies, the companies that we invested in, just in the rounds that we're in, so no follow-on rounds, those companies raised $133 million. And so we could have easily deployed very well a $100 million fund for our first fund. The second piece of analysis we did was we looked at how much the companies will be raising in the next 36 months. And we worked with the companies. We realized that there's going to be one who actually is raising in the billions, and collectively, the others are going to be raising 450 million. So to think that we would look at the best of those companies and invest maybe 50 to 55 million in follow on rounds. So we will be investing follow-on rounds from that general fund one because we capped and closed it so early. And then the third piece of analysis we did was we looked at our deal flow. And as Amy said, we see 10,000 deals a year. So to think of finding the best, doing the due diligence, and if we work with a company for 6 to 12 months, we have the five managing partners to think of doing another 10 to 15 deals in that uh, seed in series A, And then we'll save some money for follow-on B rounds. So $100 million is very doable. And what we really look forward to is continuing on and doing our next fund, probably even bigger, because we do have that kind of deal flow. And we look for great technologies, but they're growing. They're all growing. All of them are having up rounds, we're really proud to
2: say. So it's not just that the companies you invest in are raising a lot of money at the round you participate in, but also that their future, their growth is so large and your own network, your own pipeline, it continues to expand. It's kind of all, all three of those pieces together. Truly is. Okay, I want to talk about partnership. You've mentioned some of your your partners, and I know the two of you have been working together for a very long time within professional circles, I think twenty plus years if i'm if I'm not mistaken. And I have to say actually we've done now, I don't know, I think it's fifteen or so interviews here with folks from the investment com- community at Palico. I've never actually done two people together, but I thought it'd be so fun because I think you guys make a wonderful partnership. I wanted to hear from you guys a little bit about what makes a successful partnership, and I think not just kind of in general, but specific examples of times and ways that, that you complement each other, specifically to make better investment decisions? I would say that working together for so
0: long, we know each other's strengths and weaknesses, and we play to each other's strengths and weaknesses. And I think what's really important, and we've had the other team members tell us this, is we respect each other so much that we're fine to disagree. And we know how to disagree, and we know how to challenge each other. and But it's all done respectfully. It's kind of like you build a family and you build a culture. And I think that's really important because, because we do work on so many interdisciplinary deals. So we depend on each other. We actually are compensated across all our deals. So it's not like I get more if I bring in a deal or Amy brings in more, or Carolyn, whoever. We're all compensated across all of the deals, across the funds. And, and the same thing with our venture partners and advisors. So we have incentivized all of the, the team to work with each other and work for the best of every single company that we're working for.
2: I want to pick up on one thing you just said, which is the compensation altogether as a team, which to me feels like the right approach. And I think also with that comes with a sense of partnership, being partners, not only among each other, but also being partners with your limited partners. And two things. One is you mentioned before treating them as partners in terms of co-investment opportunities. You touched lightly on how you communicate with your LP base, but I think that's also important when you're talking about economics. And and maybe you can share how you think about philosophically being economically aligned and partnering.
3: Sure. I mean, we are major investors in our own funds. And I think that really is important that our economic incentives are completely aligned with our limited partners. We have some investors who just want to Have a check written every month. We have some investors who want to be on every week. We have a a deal flow call and they want to be on that deal flow call every Thursday. Really, this fund sees the most interesting things coming down the pike. So we have professional investors who are limited partners who are participating actively in that deal flow call. We might even put some things on the deal flow call that we don't think are going to be appropriate for the fund just to highlight them to an investor. So we have three different levels. We have people who just want to see a check written back to them and write a check. We have people who want to hear about a co-invest that we think is a good opportunity, but then they just want to write a check. And then we have LPs who are really active every week looking at the deals with us and our partners
0: in that way. We know the best answers often come with multiple people giving input. And so we welcome that.
3: I mean, we're making the final decision. Don't get me wrong. But they, <laughs> they're looking for co-invest and, you know, they're really interested. It's, it's, fun. it's I, great. It's a community surrounding the fund.
2: One of my last podcasts was with ILPA. And I started off with, tell me, what does it mean to be a limited partner? And some of the drawbacks and, and some of the advantages of that. Well, I just want to say thank you. It was a real pleasure speaking with you and having you on Alco Capital Calls. And, and I learned a lot. And I know everyone listening also learned a lot. So thank you very much for your time.
0: Thank you very much for your time. And we look forward to meeting some of the folks who are listening.
3: Thank you. Have a great day.